0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the County Cricket Podcast in association with our friends at Bear Crickets. I'm your host, Aaron, aka The Cricket Connoisseur, and joining me on my left for today's incredibly special episode of TCCP is none other than Durham County Cricket Club head coach, Mr. Ryan Campbell. So Ryan, first things first, mate, thank you ever so much for coming onto the podcast today for a chat about all things county crickets and of course, cricket coaching. I've got to ask, mate, how's your day been so far?
1: <laughs> well, it's been pretty good. It's a, it's a bit weird now that uh, we finally uh, we're off the hurly-burly of County Cricket. I'm actually sliding back into being a parent and helping my wife and school drop-offs and shopping and all those sort of things, which is a bit weird. But, you know, it's obviously we love doing it. So, uh, yeah, it's really nice time at the moment.
0: I bet it is. It's been an incredibly hectic summer, as we shall discuss. And in terms of the off-season, I mean, it hasn't been too long. It's been, what, about two and a half weeks now since the season has finished. But have you been spending your time? Because personally speaking, I have been a bit bored. I can't lie. I've been been missing the county championship.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It it doesn't take long till you start wondering, um, you know, where should I be? Because, you know, you spend your whole life according to a schedule and, uh, you know, being told... Well, I'm doing the telling, basically, but knowing where you should be at what time. So, um, look, obviously, we've uh, had a bit of time to reflect. You've got to go through all the, uh, I guess, the the technical things of of coaching where we have our one-on-one assessments. You know, obviously, Marcus North is a big part of those as well. And uh, Friday, we had a massive uh, debrief of the season with our coaching staff. Um, You know, the good, bad and ugly of it all, and you know, Obviously, it's my first year, so I was learning a lot, but um, now that I've seen a lot more, you know, I've got a bit more of an opinion on a few things of of how we did it, and you know, so um, they're they're all the, I guess, sounds a bit mundane sort of thing, but they're really important parts of, you know, finishing off a year before we really have a a look ahead, Um, and of course... You know, knowing Marcus North and myself, we we won't be sitting on our hands for long. We'll be doing something very quickly and, you know, thinking about and planning about how we're going to go about next year.
0: Well, that's the important next step, isn't it? Because the 2023 summer might have finished, but all of a sudden you blink. It's the 2024 season and you're doing it all over again. And yeah, you do have to put things in place in order to replicate the success of this summer, which we will touch upon in a lot of detail. Over the course of today's recording, I've got absolutely no doubt about that whatsoever. But Ryan, before we get into the chats about cricket coaching and your time at Durham so far, I wanted to transport you all the way back to the origins of the Ryan Campbell cricketing story. So what were your first ever memories of cricket, either playing or watching this magnificent game?
1: Yeah, I loved it from the start. I know that. But um, look, I- I'm the youngest of, of four um, you know, two older brothers and an older sister, and we, we were very sporty. Remembering, I'm I'm old, so uh, you know there was no uh, iPads and Xboxes and all that sort of stuff to keep everybody keep yourself busy. But you know, the four of us were always in the backyard. We were either kicking an AFL footy around or we were playing cricket. And as the youngest, you know, I got picked on a bit. You know, all the older brothers and I, even my older sister, who actually played. Uh, State indoor cricket for Western Australia. Um, you know it, those battles out the back were hot. And it, you know it was all on, and and then obviously when we watched on TV, you know my I was lucky enough I you know I sat there and idolised Dennis Lilly and Rod Marsh and those sort of greats of um, Australian cricket. And, you know watching the West Indies, I wanted to be Viv Richards when it, whatever he whatever his bat was, I needed to get that. Um, so yeah, but no, look, they're very fond memories, but it, like most, I reckon, it all started with the family.
0: And that is very much a, a common theme on the podcast. In particular, funnily enough, in Australia, it's always backyard cricket. That's where almost cricketing legends are born, aren't they? In the backyard, it does get very spicy out there. It's almost like a Boxing Day test.
1: You you, you know that uh, the camellia tree to your left, that's out. If the rubbish bin to your right, that's definitely out. There's an automatic wiki. Um, you know, the, the one that I didn't like was the old six and out rule. That, that kind of got under my skin to try and be a bit more dashing. But, yeah, mate, that's that's where the game was all about. Of course, you know, we used to tape up one side of the tennis ball so it would swing and do a few things. So, um, yeah, we, we didn't leave it to chance. And if you weren't in the backyard, we are in the front yard, of course, and that's open to the street. So then you'd have neighbours rocking up and, you know, you'd have so many fielders and, hey,
0: brilliant. Honestly, that is something that I do wish we had a bit more of in England, but I suppose the weather isn't quite conducive to it, is it, in comparison to, to Australia. And in terms of those early cricketing days, Ryan, if there was a particular memory or a particular highlight which stands out to you in those formative years, would it have been those days in the backyard and the front yard or would it have been those days sitting in front of the TV and, and watching those legends of the game, the Dennis Deleys, the Rod Marshes, the Viv Richards, right? the Joel Garners, the Michael Holdings of the world, would it have been those days or, or something else which really stands out to you in terms of capturing your imagination in a cricketing capacity?
1: Well, well, I reckon, uh, so so basically every Christmas holiday or, you know, summer holidays for us in Australia, we'd always go down, my mum and dad would always take us down to a place called Point Perrin where we'd have, um, you know, a our own chalet sort of thing. And, you know, we were one of about 20 chalets in this area where you know you'd go swimming you'd go fishing and all that sort of stuff that Aussies do but you know within the compound there was obviously a beautiful grass area in the middle and you know every chalet all the kids would come out all the parents and you know the old days the mums and dads were having a beer just overlooking and you know you, you were playing cricket you'd play from from the sun up to sun down it was You know, a a brief minute to go for a swim to cool off a bit, but then back and you're back into it. And, you know, those are the memories for me that I look back and, you know, the the test matches that were going on in that compound after watching, obviously, the TV and it was Dennis Lilly and Rod Marsh were there and the West Indies were there in our minds. So, um, you know, they they were the days of just letting your imagination run wild and, and playing for the right reasons it was all for the love of it you know it was fun it was you know you couldn't get enough if you were given out lbw or something or you know you were sour for the next two hours or, or if you you got out or whatever but yeah th- those holiday uh you know memories for me really stick out in my mind
0: well that is absolutely wonderful to here to be honest Ryan and they do sound like wonderful times they really do as you said it's that almost untamed love of the game, that's where it comes from, isn't it? Those yes. days, those, those core memories, I suppose. And we have spoken about some absolute legends and titans of the game of cricket so far in this podcast. But if you could pick out just one in particular who had a real influence on your playing career, per se, and your next stages in the game, who do you say was your cricketing role model or icon or influence in those well, early years, per se?
1: Yeah, to be honest, it was Rod Marsh. You know, I saw him on the TV, I did all this sort of stuff, and then, you know, I just, I was a young up-and-coming wicketkeeper. I'd been brought into the WA squad as a second wicketkeeper. Um, And then I received a phone call, and it's this bloke, gruff-sounding voice saying, "Uh, G'day, is that Ryan? Yep, yep. Uh, mate, just uh, wanted to ring and congratulate you. Um, you know, you're going to come to Adelaide and you've been selected to come for the uh, in the Australian Cricket Academy. Uh, you're going to spend the next nine months, you know, with with me. My name's Rod Marsh. And I, at that, I just laughed and hung up the phone because I thought it was my mate trying to play a joke on me. Um, and suddenly the phone rang again and, I you know, I picked it up and he said, hey, if you ever hang up on me again, you will never be coming to, not only will you never come to the academy, you'll never play cricket in Australia. I was like, oh, my God, what have I done? This is Rod Marsh. Um, So, yeah, so, you know, flew to Adelaide, um, joined an amazing group of young players there. But, you know, Rod was the figurehead and and the head coach and, you know, everything you did was under his scrutiny. He was the one that forged careers, really, and saw the talent in you. But, again, that's where the first inklings for me about the way I wanted to play and the way I was going to play and how we should play the game. And, you know, Rod was very much about we need to entertain. You batters need to entertain people. They can pay good money to watch. I want to be entertained. When I'm coaching you guys, I want to be entertained. But the, the factor that you're also missing is if you guys entertain and score as fast as you can, our bowlers is going to have more time to take 20 wickets. And that's my ethos even now. It's, you know, for Rod to impart in that. And, you know, like I say, I was lucky enough in that squad there was Andrew Simons and Ian Harvey, you know, Shane Lee, Brett Lee, all these sort of blokes. But for me, you know, I was there as a wicketkeeper. So, you know, my job was to keep, yes, I was a batter, and I liked getting on with it, but I'd always batted, you know, middle order, you know, batted seven where wicketkeepers were told they had to bat. But at the same time, I got a knock on my door while I was at the academy and this bloody geek with big ears walked into my room to shake my hand and say, hi, my name's Adam Gilchrist. Um, I just wanted to give you a heads up that I'm just been signed in by WA. So I'm coming to WA to be the wicketkeeper. And... Two things happened. One, I'll always remember Adam Gilchrist because he's a great mate of mine now, but the actual, for him to take time out of his, you know, day of arriving at the academy because he had a keeper's camp on or something, but to actually come and find me and have that conversation with me, not let me find out any other way. He wanted to tell me that he was coming. Um, You know, just shows the character that he is. and the second thing was, obviously, I walked straight into the office of Rod Marsh and said, "Well, mate, I, I think I should really just head home because Gilly's going to keep and he's going to play for WA for the next five, six, or ten years at least. Um, you know, my career is over." And and Rod was very quickly, "No, no, no. I've I've been working on something in my mind. I, I'll tell you, I've actually got a plan for you in the next few weeks. So just leave it with me." And then it was it was probably a couple of months later, but That the academy team played England. And in that English team, you know, they came, mate, I think it was 1995, so there was Devin Malcolm and, you know, I think Graham Gooch, all those sort of guys, Alex Stewart, and us as the academy, we played them two one-dayers. And the first day we beat them, and then the second day Rod came up to me and said, mate, you're going to open the batting tomorrow. I said, what do you mean, mate? I've never opened the batting. He goes, no, well, i just got something in my head. I want to see you open the batting, but I want you to just be you and absolutely go for it. And I thought, oh, yeah, okay, that that sounds like fun. So anyway, the next day, you know, England again, make 250, 260, and we knocked it over in the 40th over or something. And I was lucky enough to make 60-odd off, I don't know, 30 or 40 balls, just swinging and doing what I used to do. But, you know, I came off the ground. And Rod just said to me, mate, it's clear. I've always thought it, but now I know you're an opening batsman. You were you going to open the batting in four-day cricket, one-day cricket doesn't matter. This is what you are now. So don't worry about any. Don't worry about your keeping. Your keeping will be fine. You just keep, you know, doing that. But we got to make sure that everyone knows that you can bat and you're going to open the batting. And without that guidance, without those words, without that faith that Rod showed in me. Mate, I would never would have played for WA. I would never would have played, in, you know, first-class cricket. But Rod saw something, and along the way, then I end up getting picked for WA. First, as a keeper, just to fill in for Gilly for one match. But then, yeah, I was selected as an opening batter to be Michael Hussey's partner, and the rest, as they say, is history.
0: It certainly is, and honestly, isn't it crazy how life works out sometimes? I mean, that's absolutely surreal, isn't it? The yeah. fact is, Rod was your hero. And then he had such a big influence on crafting your cricketing story. And Ryan, this is a very, very big question. But in terms of Marsh's influence, do you think he did have the biggest influence on your playing career?
1: Oh, definitely, Rod. Like he, he was the one, you know, my, I, I'm lucky enough. To, I, I had the same coach in first class cricket for nearly all my critics, I think, barring two years. And that was Wayne Clark. And Wayne was an exceptional man manager and did amazing things for us for WA. And it, like, did he make me a better player? Probably, you know, the way he man managed me and knew my style. And, and, you know, Tom Moody was the other one who was the captain. Those two were great leaders and understood the pieces of their puzzle and didn't want us to change. But as long as the team came first. um, So those two backed me to the hilt, which again, you need that backing if you're going to play the style that I was going to play and, and to be successful. And, you know, we were, we played in a, an extremely successful period, not only for WA but for Australian cricket where, you know, the Sheffield Shield competition was easily better than test cricket. And that's, you know, that's coming from guys who play test cricket. That's not coming from me. But it was a great time to be there. And like I say, Rod and Tom did amazing things. Sorry, uh, Wayne Clark and, and Tom did amazing things for my career. But I still hark back to the fact that Rod made me what I am because, he gave me the faith and saw the, the had the vision to see something that no one else saw. You know, when I started opening the batting again, but I had to even discuss this at length for hours and hours with my club team, let alone anyone else, to try and get it through because they wanted me to bat at number four because that was best for the team. But, you know, I would try to explain. I get that, but my future is going to be as an opening batter and I'm going to have to open the batting at some point and, we had two captains at the time. We had Bruce Reed, who was playing for WA. He believed I should be in the middle order because he he thought I was great there. But the guy that filled in when he was away was a guy called Brett Mulder, and he believed I should open the batting. So basically, I would open the batting, and then Bruce would come back. I'd go down the list, and we kept swapping. And then I made that many runs, basically, opening the batting. Bruce said, okay, I'm sick of arguing with you. You're an opener now. So... But like I say, that, that's a bit of a long-winded way of saying it. But the fact that Rod saw that in me and saw it, not just me as a player, he, you know, that academy throughout the years, he found guys. Everyone can say, oh, well, you know, he got the best talent sent to him. Yeah, okay. And maybe, maybe he did. Obviously, he did. But I have no doubt the strike rate of players who went to the academy ending up playing for either... Their state or for their country would have been nowhere near as high as is if if Rod hadn't been in charge to see the talent to nurture it and then to get the best out of it was it was just phenomenal.
0: It really was, and a testament to the great man as well. And just talking of strike rate in particular, Ryan, because this is something which I have no doubt will probably come up later, and in particular run rates when we have our discussion about Durham. But in terms of your play style as a cricketer, it was very expansive, very explosive, very dynamic in terms of your batting. And you did mention that something which Rod Marsh almost instilled in you from those early days. But in terms of the the origin of that play style, that almost increased focus on strike rates and scoring runs quickly and being a devastating opening option, where do you think that does originate from? Was that from your time in the cricket academy or did it come beforehand or did it I don't know formulate afterwards where do you think that's almost borderline obsession with scoring runs quickly putting pressure on the opposing bowler almost originated from
1: Well I'm not a 100% sure it's it's not like I thought to myself well I'm always going to try and hit fours and sixes like that never ever came to me but you know I was always of the belief that I needed to score and I found in my batting, I found out pretty quickly that when I didn't have intent and and, and really trying to look to score, I wouldn't get in very good positions as a player, you know, even to defend or let the ball go. And I I found just that it was just a very simple thing for me. When I was looking to score, I let the ball go better than I ever did because I was trying to get in a spot that, okay, I can drive that or maybe I can't or I can pull that or maybe I can't and things like that. So it just, yeah, it, it's some something, it, it was a natural thing for me. If I saw someone bowl me a half-tracker wide, first ball I faced, why would I leave it? That was, in the end, I was just thinking, and again, it probably cost me a, a few wickets and my average probably not as good as what it should be because I should have let a couple of those go, especially if you ask my dad. But, um, you know, that was just my simple philosophy. I was going to see it and hit it. And I kept it that simple my whole career. And, you know, yeah, of course and again, if we're going to speak about coaching a bit later, we can tackle this then. But obviously now, I wonder if I could have coached me as a kid, as that really rash 22, 23 year old, what could I have done for that player? And I, I my my heart tells me I think I would have made him even better. But Again, maybe that's just me being full of crap, but um, I, I, I just, yeah, the, the way I saw the game, the way I still see the game, I just don't think I could have ever been a defensive mindset sort of batsman or a, a guy that played the game in that sort of sense.
0: See, that is fascinating. And I, I will touch upon that in a bit more detail when we do get onto the coaching aspect because, as you mentioned right there, it's something which is very much still in your philosophy as a cricket coach, as we've seen this season. So we'll pick that conversation up in due course, Ryan, because that will be a fundamental aspect of our chat about cricket coaching. But in terms of your playing days, right, you had some fantastic days, some incredible memories from your time with Western Australia. You made your debut for the Australian cricket team, which at that stage is incredibly impressive, given the, the sheer strength in depth. As you mentioned, the Sheffield Shield was quite spectacular at that stage in time. And then, of course, you went on to have a bit of an international career for Hong Kong and played in the Mm -hmm. 2016 T20 World Cup in India, became the oldest ever debutante in a T20 World Cup, which is a fantastic piece of trivia for any cricket badgers out there. But in terms of your playing days, what would you say, looking back and in reflection, what's your proudest moments from your time out there in the middle?
1: winning winning's always why it's why I play a team sport it's why um you know even to this day I want my kids to be involved in team sports and stuff because you, you you learn so much about life in that team and you learn how to win but you also learn how to lose and you learn how to lose together and you work it out and hopefully you come together as a, as a group and you work it out and then you go forward and win but um yeah when i look back at my career i have such fond memories of winning sheffield shields for wa and one day titles and those sort of things yeah playing for australia was amazing don't get me wrong could i i wish i had done it a million more times 100 percent. but you know the fact is I, I don't spend too much time sitting here going oh poor me Mate, I, I was born in a time when we had the greatest wicketkeeper of all time playing the game who changed the way that wicketkeeper batters were seen forever in a day. You know, that's one of the, the things that you just got to go, well, that's, that's cool. I, I played in the same team as him, so to speak. So yeah, for me, mate, it, it's very much about um the, the, the team winning elements. I also would throw in, I know that people, this is a bit of a debatable question, but, you know, the fact that I was probably one of the first to play that ramp shot, which in my thinking was just a theory that I always had. And, you know, playing it, I think, for Australia A against Sri Lanka kind of started something, at, you know, at the time. Um, so I look back at that and go, you know, I don't care. Anyone can claim they can do it or, you know, Dilshan, obviously, and all these sort of things. But I'm pretty sure I was probably one of the first to do it. And I'm, I'm proud that I had the courage to do it and I had a I love a theory and the theory was so sound in my mind that it was gonna work and then I had the courage and I guess the um, to, to fear to use a but not a better word but the, the balls to actually play it on national TV against an international lineup and, and did it did it pretty well and you know from then on it kind of caught on with everyone so yeah, that's, that's probably a little uh, moment in my, my career. I'd go, you know what, that was pretty cool.
0: It certainly is. And again, in terms of the, the thinking and the rationale behind that, I do just want to enter the psyche of Ryan Campbell for just a second because for those who don't know why the ramp shots is an effective option, Ryan, can you just explain that for people who are maybe new to this well, I suppose very modern style of batting.
1: Yeah, well, well, to be honest, it was fine leg. Fine leg for me was the one because you, we we were playing a game where scoring 360 degrees wasn't you know, well-known thing. In fact, it wasn't even thought of. So as the wicketkeeper, I used to always have to sit in the bowlers' meetings and listen to how we're going to play, you know, bowl against certain people, but then they come up with their death plans and pretty much the slower ball, you know, there was only a few blokes who had a really good slower ball. Ian Harvey was one at the time who was out of the back of the hand. and um, So there wasn't too many. So basically all you would hear was, well, I'm going to have to bowl Yorkers. So we're going to have fine leg up, mid off, mid on back, if I'm, if I'm just in case they missed, and they're going to try and hit it straight. Let's not get hit square, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I just kept sitting there thinking to myself, okay, fine leg is up. They're going to, bowl, going to bowl me a york. So I know where it's coming. Pretty much 80 85% in my favour, I know where the ball's going. Why wouldn't I get down and try and get to it on the full? And if I get to it on the full, it's just literally going to ramp off my bat and go straight over my head, and that would go for four. And if I did it once or did it twice, hoping fine leg then has to go back. And if fine leg goes back, then they have to bring mid on and mid-off up, which then I've got a scoring opportunity down the ground and, you know, I'm thinking, you know, bowlers are a bit dopey. But they won't get it. They won't nail it 100% of the time. So I'll get another scoring opportunity down the ground. So that was my theory. And I felt the theory was bloody solid, to be honest. Um, and then I played it uh, the week before against before Sri Lanka. We played a, a one-day game against Victoria and... We just we were out of the game. You know, we lost early wickets, and we you know, and I was batting with the tail, and I thought to myself, Ian Harvey was bowling, and he had bowled me three you know slow ball out of the back of the hand, and I went to the academy with Ian. I knew exactly what he bowled. Something right, he's going to bowl his Yorker now. Darren Berry is up. The wicket key was up at the you know the stumps. He was bagging me and sledging me, and I thought, well, now could be an unbelievable time to try this theory of mine. If I get it perfectly, I can hit Darren Berry right in the face, and he'll never lip and burb me ever again. And at worst, I might get it and I might go for four. And hence I did it. Hence it went for four. Hence I was a bit uh, angry because I didn't hit Darren Berry in the face. But you know, it, it, it all worked out, and that was it. Was born in my head then that it was like, yep. This, this theory is sound and I'm going to do it again. And then I got picked for Australia, like I say, in the next week and got thrown in by Justin Langer and said, mate, we need to up the ante. You go now and best time and to do it is now rather than later. And you know, I think Zoysa was bowling around the wicket to me and trying to bowl, you know, some sort of death. And there you go. That, that, that's when I did it and sort of I'll, I'll always look back at that, that game and go, yeah, we changed a few things there.
0: You certainly did, and that's a, a throwback name, Nuan Zoysa. Goodness me, he used to play in the IPL. Remember yeah. watching him in in the first couple of seasons. Goodness me, that is a throwback to say the least. But yeah, that's really really interesting to be honest, Ryan. And yes, the the logic and the rationale is definitely sound because it is something that we do witness a lot in the modern game. Joss Butler, for example, is a massive proponent of that. And we've also seen in in recent times what's almost called the pancake scoop, which uh, Tom Curran. Does quite a few times that does involve third man, so third man's yeah. up. You can almost well, like tossing a, a pancake. You just flick it behind, and it goes for four or six. So that's very, very interesting to understand. And mate, let me
1: just let me just add to that. When when I did, first did it, mate, I'll be honest, I had no idea that blokes like McCollum and that we're going to do it to Sean Tate and hit it for six, and then like you say, Joe Root and all these guys would go over third man. It, it's gone crazy now. And now those blokes play it way better than any us old old blokes. But like I say, and that's why I love blokes who have theories about the game. As long as you're open and you create an environment to talk this stuff through, nothing can be a bad idea. It's just, okay, what is the, the theory? And then they might reel something off and you'll go, yeah, but what about this? And they'll say, yeah, but no, that's not going to happen because this could happen. or." That's how theories are born, and that's why you want good cricket conversations going on in your your team and your younger players. I think I'll say that now. That little point right now is one of my real alarm bells with our youngsters is that they don't talk enough about the game. They don't watch the game. They'll be on their phone. They'll see the wickets, but that's 20 seconds of stuff. They didn't see the over-and-a-half that Ben Rain bowled to that bloke to set up to get the wicket, they just look at the wicket. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we've got to entice our youngsters to make sure they're watching, what are they seeing, and then also talk about the game because they might see it differently. You know, the T20 game, youngsters see white ball cricket a whole load differently to us oldies. So you want to encourage them to talk about it and see see what they can come up with. And that's where you get... um, pretty cool environment when everyone's suggesting stuff
0: absolutely and to be honest ryan i think we need to get into our conversation about coaching because i'm itching to have a chat about it to be honest i'm really impressed with your philosophies and i've got some great quotes which i'll bring up in due course but before we get on to your own philosophies your own ideas and your approach i suppose to the world of cricket coaching I suppose we have to go back to the start of that journey because how did you go from being a professional cricketer to entering the world of cricket coaching? Because in between that, if I'm not mistaken, you also had a stint in the world of cricket broadcasting. So how did the, the journey into the world of coaching first transpire, per se?
1: Yeah, mate. I, I never wanted to be a coach. That's that's for sure. I loved the media. I loved the radio, the TV. I was, um, you know, in, I, I probably... Retired quite early. I think I was 31 or just turned 32. Um, I was at the peak of my game. I I think I made 100 the two games before in in Shield cricket. Um, But I was so busy outside of cricket. I had been brought in. You know, I was the doing TV for uh, news. One of the news uh, broadcasters there, so I was their guy in. But then from there. They also, I had my own travel show. It was called Postcards WA, and I hosted. I hosted that, and then you know I was doing radio, um, and I was being pulled in different directions. You know, they wanted more and more of my time, but obviously I couldn't because I was still playing cricket. Um, and so when I decided I had enough of playing, I probably didn't have enough. Really, I just wanted to go to the next step of my life, and. You know, that, that for a lot of people is a scary time. But for me, it was kind of, you know, I, I want to I leave the game when I'm at my peak. I don't want to get pushed out. I don't want to get uh, dropped for a game and then be angry about that sort of stuff. Or Why am I getting dropped, you know, and then you forget about the whole great time you've had. So for me, it was simple. I just walked away and said, thanks, you know, told my coach. He cried. I shed a tear and then said, but, mate, it's done now, so let's move on. Um, so, yeah, so I went straight into I up uh, radio, TV. I ended up being, you know, breakfast radios, which talk about tough. I, I'd been a cricketer in my life, but getting up at 4.30 a.m. to get ready for breakfast radio from 6 till 9, that was tough. Um, loved, loved the TV. Obviously, was calling the games as well for Fox in, in Australia and things. Uh, I hosted the IPL when they first came in. So the thought of me being a coach wasn't really in the front of my mind. I had always done my coaching certificates just in case because I felt, you know, that's probably, you know, do the due diligence and go through your career not and come out the other end with nothing would have been a bit scary. So I always did that and, I, you know, I did my level three, which is the highest you can get in Australia. So, so I had all the, I guess, the documentation to say that I could coach. I then really, really, and this is so sad, but I just missed the game so much. Um, you know, I'd been asked a number of times to help coach, like individuals for this for the state team, and I'd done some of that. And then my club team kept asking, "Oh, could you just come out and help?" And out, and I kept doing that. And I kept, for some weird reason, just getting dragged back into cricket and the, the being surrounded and. Oh God, this is this is not going to end well. I'm going to end up being one of those tragic uh, cricket coaches here if I if I go full into it. But it wasn't until a great friend of mine, Charlie Burke, who was the national coach of Hong Kong, uh, flew me up to Hong Kong for you know help um, put on a, a clinic, so to speak, with it with his national team, and I did that. And he just said to me after, he said, "Mate, Cambo, like you're good at this." you know you got to do it. You should be a coach. And I went, oh, mate, you know, I'll think about it. You know, I'll, like I say, I've got so many things on back. I, you know, I even had my own um, uh, management company running at the same time. So I was sort of juggling all this stuff. And then, you know, about three or four months later, I get this phone call from Berkey saying, hey, mate, there's a job up here going at the kellan Cricket Club. It's the head coach but you also run the whole, like basically you run all of cricket on the Kowloon side. You would then, if you came, I'll definitely have you as my assistant for the national team. I think you'd love it. And I just sort of ummed ah, but then I thought to myself, well, you know what? I've lived my whole life in Perth. I love Perth. I'm such a Perth boy. you know what, what with what six months in Hong Kong, how, how can that be a bad thing? Um, and I just thought to myself, okay, I'll um, because I could, they wanted me still to play a little bit, but they said, you know, the coaching is the most important part. And, you know, I thought, well, I'm still fit and healthy. I, I can play a bit for you, no worries. But, yeah, so I went, thought I'd uh, go as a coach and literally fell in love with the city and the, t- and the country. Uh, Fell in love with a girl who, uh, you know, I was single at the time, and you know, we ended up having a, a, our first child born in Hong Kong. Um, you know, the the whole Hong Kong aura, and but in the meantime, it was a great place. But then I made Kowloon almost this fortress that we won everything known to man. I think at one stage I had twelve of the national twenty-two man squad come, coming out of my club. Um, we won the Premier League which is their first class cricket, two day cricket 50 over cricket, T20 cricket, we won it all um, so the success was there to be seen I guess that you know the the number of kids that had joined Kowloon for instance went from I think it, I started with 70 kids and by the end was something like 450 we couldn't fit any, in fact we couldn't fit those kids in, we were finding, trying to find other places but Word had got out that Kowloon had been a is it was a good place to be and you could learn cricket there. And i I'm, I guess I look back very proudly at that, that you know we created a pretty cool club that played in the most expensive cricket ground in the world. I think it's valued at 1.3 billion US dollars or something, right in the heart of TST. But mate, it was a fantastic time. And that, that's where the coaching book, the, the scratch really it was it was away and I, I found it very hard not to stay involved.
0: Well, again, Ryan, that is absolutely incredible to hear. And I suppose, in a way, it's also a very special location for your family because you have got ancestry in Hong Kong as well. So there's quite a nice circularity to that. And obviously, you've met your wife, you've had your son there as well. It's <laughs> it's quite incredible, isn't it, how life yeah. works out sometimes?
1: Mate, it is weird. And just to throw, make it a little bit weirder, I, I never knew... That my grandmother was Chinese, but uh, the the younger generation did some research, and you know my dad, who's still to this day, is ninety three, and he's got one grainy picture of his mother because he his mother passed away when he was two, I think, so he has no memories of, at all. Um, but yeah, then obviously the, a lot of people did some research, and we found out she actually was from Kowloon, so that was pretty cool as well. But um, yeah, the things you find out, the things you do, it's. It's weird how the world
0: works. It, it really is. Sometimes it's almost like destiny. And I know that's a very strange concept. Some people don't believe in that. But flipping Eck, I mean, there are some, some massive coincidences in life. And yeah, that does seem like one of those, those examples of destiny taking place, almost Ryan's. Just from that passage, you seem to reflect very, very fondly on your time in Hong Kong and the impact that you had on Kowloon Cricket Club. But I, I suppose the, the rather profound question which I wanted to ask was what's the biggest lesson that you learnt from your time in Hong Kong to take forward? Because obviously after that went on to coach Netherlands and now at Durham. But in in hindsight and in reflection, what do you say was your biggest takeaway from your time at Kowloon Cricket Club?
1: Well, what I I discovered was associate cricket, which I I didn't even know about. Like I, I was like most, you know, every... Occasionally in a World Cup you'd see the Dutch play or Ireland pop up and and, and play okay or something and you'd go, oh, yeah, but then you wouldn't even think about it. But for me, I entered the world of associate cricket there and saw the discipline of the players, the tremendous sacrifice that they would put in, the sacrifice of coaches and who wouldn't get paid massive amounts of, of money, but did it for the because they loved it. Um, the ability as a coach to have to problem solve because you can't throw money at the at the problem. You have to think your way through it and you have to find like-minded people. And also as a, as a just from a skill set, you know, I, I was very, part of the, I guess, the allure for me to go to Hong Kong was I didn't want to be back in Australia, start my coaching and everyone goes straight away, oh, well. He's a dashing batter, so every batter that goes to him, he's going to try and turn into some you know, flamboyant sort of thing or it's only going to be wicket keepers or anything. I just thought to myself, you know what, I think I'm going to be a bit more than that as a coach, so I want to find out everything. I, I, I know that I can't fix a fast bowler by biomechanically going through all the bits, of, but I kind of do know it. But as a wicketkeeper batter, people are probably not going to look at me and go, oh, can you help me fix this guy? But, you know, when you're in the associate world, you have to do that. You have to fix a right arm off spinner who's got a bit of a kink in their action. Like in in Australia, you just go, okay, can you just go see this person? Or if you're in England, okay, we'll send you down to Loughborough. You need to sort of, and you sort of wipe your hands off it. Um, so the, the associate world really showed me that, that – there's the haves and the have-nots, and the have-nots are a much better story. It's a cooler story, to be honest. Um, and that's why, yeah, I guess that's what my takeaway was, was how much I love the associate world and how much that, you know, people were willing to sacrifice to get their country to where they wanted to get to.
0: Well, Ryan, I absolutely love that answer because I adore the world of associate cricket. So not just your Netherlands. I mean, at the time, it was Ireland as well, weren't they, of course? Before, yeah. they did get that test status, Scotland jersey. But in particular nowadays, watching teams like Samoa, watching teams like Fiji, for example, which is just brilliant. Vanuatu, Yeah, Vanuatu, who during COVID kind of saved us. They had the, the Port Via T10, which yeah. was fantastic to watch. And then, of course, we've had the West Africa Trophy with the likes of Sierra Leone, Ghana. It's brilliant as to, to seeing how how far cricket is, has come in terms of this global sport. Obviously, you mentioned the, the haves and the have-nots. It is something which the ICC does need to sort out and improve heading into the future. But in terms of the Netherlands, because obviously that is the next big stepping stone on your coaching journey, how did you go from that time at Cowling Cricket Club and being the batting coach of the Hong Kong team to taking that massive leap forward and being the head coach of the Dutch national cricket scene?
1: Um, Look, a a bit of luck, probably. Like every good story, it involves a bit of luck. But, um, you know, one of my uh, best mates, Michael Swart, uh, when I had that management company, I I helped do the deal that took Mickey to play for the Netherlands. Uh, He had his Dutch ancestry. He had, um, you know, he had a Dutch passport. He had played cricket for WA, but, had, you know, probably fallen, wasn't quite good enough to play for WA. And I said to him about his Dutch heritage, well, why don't you go play for the Netherlands? And this was, uh, I didn't know anything about the Netherlands or anything like that, but, you know, they came a calling and myself and I remember doing a deal with Own Smits, who was the ex-captain, saying that, you know, Michael is a good player and he'd help you out. And so anyway, Swarter went off and did that and he played for the Netherlands and... Um, you know, went to World Cups. And so obviously I started to follow what the Dutch were doing quite closely and, you know, whenever he was playing. And, and I even went on, I reckon, our honeymoon, my wife and I's honeymoon. We, we went to the Netherlands for a couple of days just to have a good time and met with Peter Boren, who was the, the captain at the time. But it wasn't, I'm coming, i love a job, mate. It was more because we knew each other. We were having beers and having a great time. So there was, a, there was a bit of that contact there. Um, and then when the Netherlands job application came up, I spoke to my wife at the time who has a Dutch passport and my son, Jake, has a Dutch passport, um, saying, well, do you fancy an adventure to the Netherlands? Like Hong Kong we had really enjoyed, but we knew that it wasn't our forever-in-a-day location. So we thought. Well, I'm going to. Work. I should apply. I'm not sure I'll get a, even an interview, to be honest. But you know, we'll see how we go. I think they're pretty impressed because Hong Kong had played the Dutch a few times, and we, you know, we've been pretty impressive. Um, did the application, and I've no doubt that Peter Boren said to them that this fellow is one that we should at least listen to in in, in the conversation. Um, so I got an email saying, yeah. Mate, we'd love to interview you and, you know, from all reports, I heard stories that um, they had done a couple of interviews and pretty much had already decided that they would picked their guy. Um, And then, yeah, they got me in a room and an hour later, I received a text from Peter Byron saying, hey, mate, I reckon you're in because they love you. They're they're ringing me. They're asking me all sorts of questions. I said, oh, well, let's, fingers crossed. And, yeah, then... Basically, three or four weeks later, I received this email saying, "We'd love to give you the the role." and as a, in a twist of fate, the Dutch were due to to land in Hong Kong to play us in the World Cricket League. and at the time, obviously the Dutch needed to finish top to become the 13th super League team. so I actually got selected for Hong Kong to play in that series and just wrote to the uh, well, Charlie Burke and said, mate, uh, who had become the Chairman of Selectors at the time, and said, oh, mate, I'm unavailable for this. I- I'm finished. I'm-, I'm I'm not playing for Hong Kong anymore. Um, and they said, no, 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 we really need you. I said, Berkey, please, just take it from me. I'm not playing. I'm pulling out. And he sort of went, oh, OK. And then, obviously, a day later, he had me in uh, Langkwai Fong on the beers, trying to work out why. And which i told him mate i'm going i've just been accepted to, to be the dutch coach and so you know the team came they kind of were told that we're getting a new coach and it's not the fill-in i think it was um chris adams who was the, you know standing in while while they were trying to look for a new coach anton Ruud had left um so i didn't want to be awkward or anything like that so obviously i said to chris mate i've just been told this. He said, no, no worries. So we invited them. They trained at our ground at Kowloon and then, you know, they played the series. They won the series, played some poor cricket but played some good cricket as well. And then I invited them in to Kowloon to have lunch, sat them down in the boardroom and pretty much spelt out what I wanted from them and what I saw the future of Dutch cricket is. And you either look me in the eye now and say you're in or you're out because I, for no longer will you, this be a holiday, you know, we needed to toughen them up a bit. And, and it's, di- it's different of what sort of group you have as a coach, what how the style that you have to probably be. And I was probably a bit tougher with the Dutch because we needed to get them out of their, this is a holiday, you know, play a few good games, get on the beers, all that sort of stuff. And, mate, I love having a beer more than others. But there had to be a time and a place. So I think from that initial meeting... The player group knew that, oh, this is going to be a bit different and we're going to have to change a few things. And that's what we did.
0: Yeah, lo and behold, that is exactly what happened over the course of those next few years. And before we get on to our our chat about Durham, because, again, I'm absolutely fascinated to know what your approach has been up in the northeast so far. I suppose my question there, Ryan, just touching upon that passage, is what were your expectations? Of the Dutch, because in terms of associate cricket, they are in the upper echelons, aren't they? So, we've mentioned beforehand, they were used to qualifying for T20 World Cups and even back in the 1990s, the, the 50 over stuff. So, in terms of your aspirations, in terms of your expectations, in terms of what you expected from that Dutch team, what was that plan, that game plan that you laid out heading yeah. into the future?
1: But it was very simple. I knew that if I could get them playing uh, to the very best of their abilities, which they, I reckon, they were, they would play really well. But then they dip, then they play well, and it'd be like this the whole, you know, up and down on the whole way. What I needed to do was get them to be a consistent, hard cricket team who fought for everything, you know, battled probably going to be up against some bigger fish than them, but they couldn't take a backward step. They needed to push forward and know that the bloke next to them was going to have their back, so to speak. But I knew that if we could win the World Cricket League, we would be the first associate in the history of cricket to play in the Super League. And what that would give us is eight series against full members, 24 matches, against full members over the course of two and a half years that no one has ever had before. It meant back home in the Dutch they could plan because they knew what the games were coming, they could get sponsors, they could all that sort of stuff. I knew if we could do that, we could take this team somewhere very special and that's what we set out to do. We made some tough calls, we made some, you know, we few player personnel, some were let go, so to speak, Some came into the fold and, and had to prove their worth, and, and we moved a few blokes up and down. Max O'Dowd became an opening batter, for instance, who had never opened the batting before. Um, so we we knew we had a very good fast bowling attack, and I continue to add to that. We found Brandon Glover, who's Dutch but never been heard of, and, you know, Fred Klassen turned into an absolute gun through sheer hard work, who then got you know, scouted by the counties and things like that. So we knew we had a, the core of a good player, of good players. I thought that if I could provide a professional sort of base and show that this team had changed, that I might be able to get Ryan Tender-Scarter back, who had vowed never, ever to play for the Dutch ever again because of their unprofessionalism and, and a few things that went on in the 2011 World Cup. So I needed to prove to him that maybe it was worth looking at, at least. So, yeah, so we did all those sort of things. You know, young Shane Snader came really good and then obviously got picked up by Essex. And that was the other little thing that I thought to myself at the time before Brexit, if you had a Dutch passport, you could obviously play English county cricket. So I set about also trying to make that a big deal for Dutch players to you know, that's where you can be a full-time professional cricketer by playing in the England county system. So, you know, I did everything I could to try and get Freddie and, and Shane Snater and these sort of blokes. Glover ended up going there. Um, you know, the, the Colin Ackermans of this world. That was important to them. So, you know, you had to work out what was good for individuals, but in the meantime, what was going to be good for, for Dutch cricket, which meant I needed more youngsters. I needed to... I was going to make a mistake. I was going to make a mistake on a young kid who I thought had lots of talent and the rest will work out along the way. And that's why someone like a Buster later, for instance, played probably more games than he really deserved at the, at the start. But, mate, the kid could bowl, he could bat, he could field. You don't have many of those sitting around in the Netherlands. So I just said, well, to hell with everyone else. He's going to play and he's going to learn and, you know, we'll get a finished product from him one day. And I think that, that was great. But that those Super League matches were just, it was a whole different world. Once, you know, we were in that, the players just grew and we got matches into youngsters and, you know, we can say whatever we want to say about the Dutch at the World Cup at the moment. If you, if you like bloody having the small guy in there or if you don't like it, I just think it's fantastic. But what you're seeing is those young players, the Arlian and Dutts, who came through our 19 system, Cherise Ahmed, who's another one that we picked as a youngster, and Vikram Singh and Bus and all these youngsters. You know, they're not the the big names. And, you know, that that scored there, Van der Guden, Klassen, Glover, these sort of guys didn't get picked. So, you know, Klassen obviously is injured. But, you know, those got that's showing the depth of talent that suddenly you have now. And that was always the, the key for me. He was trying to get that depth of talent.
0: Absolutely. And to be honest, Ryan, I do think you achieved that goal because this current Dutch size are very, very exciting. And Arian Dutt, goodness me, for such a young spin bowler, his control is outstanding. Really, wow. really good talent. Imagine if
1: he used his front arm a bit more, where I keep telling <laughs> him, back, anything like that. so that's just me being old and croaky saying, use your front arm more, Arian. <laughs>
0: Well, you never know. He's still only 20. He could yeah, do. Course, you know.
1: course, lots of time.
0: Exactly. There's still lots of time for him to learn. But, Ryan, I suppose we do have to get onto our, our conversation about Durham at some point, because we are almost 55 minutes in to this episode of the podcast. And to be honest, I could go all day when it goes to talking about the Dutch. But I do understand and appreciate the fact that a lot of Durham fans are probably tuning in to today's episode. So in terms of those final days of the Dutch and the start of your time at Durham... How did that transition first transpire in terms of going from being the the Dutch head coach to going over to England, coming to the northeast, settling down at Chesterle Straits, and becoming the head coach of Durham County Cricket Club?
1: Well, I guess part of it was out of my hands, really. When you know, unfortunately, if you um, if you put my name in Google, there's a lot of stuff that comes up straight away, and that that you know, I was. Unlucky or lucky, whatever your way you wanna look at it, that I had a cardiac arrest in April two thousand and twenty two, which really put I guess the world in a bit clearer light of what we were what we needed to do and, and where we wanted to go and was I allowed to be gonna get involved back in cricket, which thankfully that those sort of clearances came later. But I kind of knew that my time with the Netherlands had come to a, a close and it was coming to a close that I in a weird twist of fate, when COVID hit, the World Cup, the T20 World Cup, which we had first qualified for, was supposed to be in Australia. And at that time, I actually had thought, well, that might be a good time to finish with the Dutch anyway. You know, And that would have been three years into it. Maybe if I could get an opportunity to get coach in Australia or England at the time, you know, that might have been my next step. But as it turned out, you know with COVID, we didn't go to the world cup we waited and then eventually we qualified for another one but then we waited but the whole thing of a world cup in australia just look if you're into your fairy tales and stuff i thought that you know that would have been a really nice way for me to finish so that was always the plan to finish in australia at that world cup and then Fingers crossed! I was going to be uh, do a good job, and someone would would like to see me or help me help out a team. So, you know, the way the Dutch finished at the World Cup, you know, beating South Africa and, and having a, a big claim on what happened at that World Cup, as well as you know qualifying eights meant they avoided the European qualifiers, which is always a tough thing when you've got Ireland and Scotland, and there's only two spots. You never know in T20, so. You know, that was a really pleasing way to finish. At the time then, obviously I was on the lookout for, for my next sort of job and uh, there was a few jobs that I was really interested in and um, in the end it came down to, um, you know, two two jobs that in a weird twist of fate I got offered both at the same within a day of each other um, and then my wife and I had to sit down and, and work out what was best for us and our kids and where the best place for us would to go to because, um, you know, that that was really important too that we we've been sort of back and forth. My kids can speak Dutch and, of course, they're English as well, but, you know, we wanted to set it somewhere where we probably could lay some roots for a little while. And um, I just kept looking at Durham and I, I don't want to say the other one because I, I feel bad if I ever say it, but... Um, my wife actually asked it, and she's not a cricket person. She she actually loves the game now, and she'll watch it with me, or or come and watch the games over and have a drink. But when it comes to real cricket stuff, she never really got involved. But she just said one simple question: Who's the best squad? What do you think you can do with with that squad if if whichever one you choose? And I thought to me, it was very clear that Durham were the ones that I could make an instant impact with. I felt their, their player list was deep. I thought the talent they had in the bowling department, I think they had a number of good batters. And I sat there and I just thought to myself, why haven't they done so well last year? And, and you know, what's going on? So in the end, it was a bit of a no-brainer. We said, you know what, we'll go cold. <laughs> we'll choose the one up north and... Um, you know, we'll just have to deal with it. But, uh, look, since we've been here, we've loved every minute of our time here. Um, the people are so friendly. Uh, the northeast is a is a great place to raise kids. So, yeah, in the end of the day, that was it. That was right. Durham it is. Let's go.
0: And to be honest, Ryan, it is a lovely part of the country. I always love my, my travels up to the northeast and to Chesler Street. And Durham really is a community-driven club even from its roots into first-class cricket. It was the fans who brought them in to the county championship in the first place, so completely echo that sentiment. And just listening back to that, that's incredibly interesting to hear in terms of you saw almost the raw materials of a successful squad. But when you first got to Durham and you first had that meeting with the lads, what did you look at in terms of areas of improvement? Because, as you mentioned, they had massively underachieved. In previous seasons, not just in white ball cricket, but of course in the championship as well. Since that relegation in 2016, they hadn't been back to the first division. So, in terms of your approach, in terms of your methodologies, what were those first areas of improvements that you targeted in that well, drum side?
1: I, I obviously I did my due diligence and uh, asked a lot of people, a lot of questions and things, but. You know, and this is where Marcus North, my relationship with Marcus um, from our, you know, playing days back in WA and we actually didn't play club cricket together at Baseball and Morley. That's how far we go back. But, you know, we, we could have an honest conversation and it was very clear that I had to create an environment with no fear. Players needed to play the way they wanted to play and the way the team wanted to go. But if you made a mistake, you couldn't get yelled and screamed at. It was just like... Did we learn from that? Was, how are we going to learn from it? Are we going to do that again? No? Okay. And then let's move on. So it wasn't, I wasn't going to go in there with a big stick, which I probably did a little bit with the, with the Dutch because I felt I needed to do that. But for, for here at Durham, I, I just could see there was so much talent, but it was almost like they were playing with a hand tied behind their back. And so, again, going back to our original point about how Rod Marsh taught me how to play the game, I wanted to make it very clear to that playing group that we were not playing for draws. We were going to risk all to win, and to win, we had we would have to absorb pressure at times, but we had to get, and again, I, I, I actually had spoken a lot about this with Matthew Mott before I came to Durham, but that getting the the, the balance right between fearless against reckless, and if you get that balance right you can create a very very good team and create a good way for players to play if they and then if they could start believing a way you could go but i guess there was the, there was a couple of little things under that that i needed to make sure that we could do and i need i knew we needed a massive year from alex lees like alex is an absolute gun if that bloke doesn't play more cricket for england well I don't know, maybe I am a poor judge, but that that kid is just, he eats, drinks, breathes cricket and making runs and he knows how to do it and he's bloody good at it. But I knew I needed a big season from him. So that that was one of the priorities, was to make sure I could try and get the best out of Alex. And again, I didn't know how I was going to get out of it. He's a gruff old Yorkshireman who does it his way. So, you know, that was going to be interesting. But the other thing was, and again, it's easy to say this now when it, when we look back. But if I was going to set a tone that we wanted to be aggressive, I kind of had to do it with someone and sort of show, put almost a player on the in the deck, pull a, I guess an ace out of my out of my sleeve and sort of lay it in the deck and say, okay, oh, well, he's not messing around if he's playing in the him. even though of course was selecting Graham Clark um, at number six. And it was funny because in the selections leading into it, I could see no reason why he shouldn't bat at six and play his aggressive brand of cricket and go for it. And, and I felt, without getting too deep, but if I had a win with Graham Clark, I knew how important he was to that team and that dressing room. The players love him. Like he bleeds Durham. That's just what he is. And I thought, well, if I could have a win with him, maybe I could win over the player group. And it was one of those weird, stupid ideas. I, I get a bit stupid at times, but I wrote a, a name on a piece of paper and I'd, I'd seen it in a movie once. I won't say it's my idea. So I'd seen it, but I thought it was such a good idea. And I wrote Graham Clark, no matter what, and gave it to Marcus North about three weeks out of, before the season. And so when we came to our first uh, selection meeting, I said, "Northie, just let that piece of paper." I said, "You can open it now." What, if, you know? And he opened it and he went, "Right, okay, let's go." And he he backed it backed it as well. And again, you know, you, you could say in hindsight it was a great move. And and now the, the onus is on Graham to to keep elevating his game to another level because we all knew what he could do in white And I just thought, well, why can't you do that in Red Bull? It's even... Because for me as a player, I found it the opposite. I could do it in Red Bull. And then White Ball, I tried to go too hard and was actually pretty crappy at it. But he got the balance in his White Ball game all right. And I just thought, well, that could be cool. And it could be cool to watch. And, you know, his growth as a player. And along with that came the rest. They came for the ride. You know, Ollie Robson everyone's spoken about him, and I, I think we just needed to give him, because he had been so up and down at, at, at Kent in his positions of batting, the only thing I said to him was, mate, we're going to give you a home. We're going to give you the one spot. You're going to bat five. That's yours. Make of it as you will. And I feel that he just felt I can now just concentrate on me and bat and play and keep and do all that for the team. I don't have to worry about opening one day and then batting seven the next. Or fl-. No. Just learn your game. So, look, there was a little, there was a few little things, and again, we're doing a podcast on me, and I think I'm talking about me, me, me. But I did, I just put in a couple of little things. But let me tell you, and I've said this the whole time, the player group were the ones who grabbed it and ran with it, and that's the credit all goes to them of how they played this year. They're, it's been quite breathtaking to watch, and to be honest, once once the car started moving. I took my hands off the wheel. It was almost, it drove itself. And that was pretty cool to watch.
0: Well, it certainly was. And even as a neutral, may I just say, Ryan, it's been an absolute pleasure to watch Durham this season. It really has. And for those who, who aren't aware about the batting bonus points in particular, 54. 54. The next best figure in the second division was 29. That is some differential between those two figures. And, and quite simply, just blown teams out of the water in the first well, innings. It was as simple as that.
1: And, and again, those bonus points, they got changed this year too. So there was less overs to do it in. Your, your rates had to be up. But, you know, the, the facts were that we just wanted to go for it because I needed time to bowl teams out because we didn't know what Riverside was going to do because I just get kept getting told that the wicket you know, it's too hard to get wickets and this, that, and, the other. and that was the other facet of the of the plan, I guess. And that's why Ben Rain was so important to us. You know, our conversations with him was like, we are not allowed to say that this wicket is flat or this wicket is useless or, that you know what, find a way, come up, change the fields, do whatever you want to do, but we're going to find a way. And that was one of the things that the bowling stocks just grabbed. The staff, they just went, yep, we're just going to go for it. We added a spinner, which was something that people laughed at me about when myself and James Hilditch, who's, my, um, who's the batting coach up here and also the analyst who was with me the whole time in the Netherlands and came with me. Between the two of us, we just sat there and said, right, we need a bowler. And here are the stats. Here are the stats that show... A really good spin bowler can be very good at the riverside. And, you know, like I say, people laughed. Northy took a second guess and thought, oh, hang on a minute, these are a bit more interesting. Then he delved into it and then he went, you know what? You're right. Let's get a premier test standard spinner to done. And that he bowl all the overs that in the past maybe a rain had at the bowler or pots or you know, all the blokes doing the hard yards when they shouldn't have to, we had to get a quality one. And Kuhneman was brilliant for us. You know, unfortunately, when he did his back, it, it really set us back. But, you know, with him, Patel, and then that we had <laughs> Northie happened to get his hands on Matty Parkinson, who the Lanks, you know, had fallen out of love with. Mate, I think combined, they were the third highest wicket-taker for us, which a spinner at Riverside half the games, and they were the third highest Everyone said it couldn't happen, but it did.
0: Well, I wanted to touch upon that because I absolutely adore spin bowling, and I thought it was a stroke of genius, to be honest. Obviously, there's a lot of, of risk associated with it because the Riverside in the past has been associated with seam bowling. So, for example, the likes of Graham Onions, Chris Rushworth in the past, obviously the likes of Ben Rain, Paul Coglam, Bryden Cass, and, of course, Matthew Potts in recent years as well. So it is very much seen as a same predominant venue. But the use of spin bowlers this year was incredibly impressive, and I wanted to actually ask about your approach and philosophy to this, Ryan. How do you view the Red Bull spin bowler? Do you see them as almost a pressure builder or a bona fide wicket taker? How do you like Scott Borthwick as a captain to utilise his spin bowlers?
1: Well, the interesting thing was... For me, and this is how we started our conversation with Northy, was, you know, we come from Perth. We play on the fastest, bounciest wicket in the world. Everyone talks about the quicks. Everyone fears batting against the pace and all that. But once you have a batter, once you get in, you love it. Not once can I remember in my time that we played without a spinner. We always had a spinner at one end. So the three bowlers, three fast bowlers, plus our all-rounder generally, they could all bowl downwind or whatever or upwind when with the new ball but they all needed a rest and we would have a spinner do the job so that spinner would obviously do a holding role for us okay because it wasn't going to spin as much as what people thought and things like that so yeah it was more of a holding role but then once we got to the east coast then that was their chance to shine so we wanted them to take wickets it wasn't just about making up numbers so when we came to the riverside Yes, they needed to bowl overs in the first innings was probably going to be, okay, we need you to be going at maybe two, two and a half and over, which by maintaining pressure, because we're going to take wickets with our fast bowlers from the other end. But when it comes innings four, because we always wanted to set out, win the toss, we bat as many as we can, as fast as we can, and then we're going to put the opposition under pressure. So that means fourth day you need to bowl a team out to win. You're going to need a spinner on the fourth day because these wickets aren't going to be so green that, you know, and if it is, it's over in two and a half, three days, which I didn't actually even see this year, um, to be fair. So that fourth-day wicket, we needed our spinner to take wickets, and that's what we hoped for, and that's what we got. So, yeah, the spin is so important, and that's why... I look at the England team, and I love the England Test team. Oh, I I think it's brilliant. I love how they go have gone about it, but I think they would missed a trick a little bit when Leach got injured. No disrespect to Mo Alley, because I think he's an unbelievable cricketer, but hadn't played red ball for so long. Um, and what was that saying to everyone else? All the other young spinners out there in in first class cricket that well, it doesn't really matter what you do because we're going to pick. We're going to pick an oldie, uh, horses for courses, which kind of – look, and Moe did a good job. Don't get me wrong. He did a, a a pretty good job. But I think you've got to promote your young spinners. You've got to find a good one. If, you know, Leach is coming back, so you'd think he's still got a few years in him. And, and Ben Stokes loves using Leach, and I think he does a great job for, for England. But if it's not him, pick a youngster and go with him. Just And I noticed that on that Lions tour there's – Quite a few spinners going. Love to see that Cullen Parkinson's going. bit nervous about him getting picked for England now, to be honest. But uh, again, that's a good thing as well. But they've got to find one and they've got to go with them. And that, that's what I would always say. You've got to promote spin as much as you can.
0: Well, Ryan, I absolutely love the answer, to be honest. As a spin bowler myself, obviously not professional by any standards. Otherwise, we would be in trouble. In this country, but it's just really refreshing to hear that kind of approach and that mentality to spin bowlers, in particular, in red Bull cricket. Because we have seen this a lot in county cricket that spinners are almost the the backup option, aren't they? They're never really preferred to a same bowler, and I love the mentality of utilising a spinner as being well, an out and out wicket taking option.
1: I, I got to say that that was the interesting point for Scotty Borthwick, because mm-hmm. Scotty, as a captain had really only used a spinner to cover up the overs, to get the over rates up and all that. He didn't think that they could be, you know, a wicket-taking option. And, you know, there was a couple of times throughout the year I was pulling my hair out thinking, why haven't we bowled a spinner yet? Because he was going back to the medium plate. But, again, that was – you know, you're talking about a, a captain who's spent his whole life except for a couple of years down at Surrey, but – that was the way you did things here at the Riverside. It was fast bowling, fast bowling, and in doubt, keep bowling fast bowlers. So for me to have to try and work with him and say, you know what, mate, if a young, if a bloke's batting and he just comes to the wicket, I want to see Parkinson bowl first to him. Not when he's on forty or fifty. Get, let the spinner bowl first, and that. So that was um, jigging. And again, now that we've signed Callum Parkinson, same thing. It's a, it's an attacking option for us. But as captains, they need to understand that as well. And that's the secret of any good spinner, you've got to have a great captain. It's why Leach has been so successful recently, because he's got a great captain in Stokes who believes in him.
0: Absolutely. And it all comes back to the concept of backing, which you mentioned right at the start of the podcast. It's something which comes up time and time and time again on this platform with young spinners. If they have the backing of the captain, if they know that the captain is going to back them through thick and thin they become a better spin bowler. They try different things. They think outside of the box. And all of a sudden, they do become an out-and-out wicket-taking option. And that's really interesting, actually. You mentioned about Scott Borthwick and almost the the modus operandi of Durham at that period of time, which had been same bowling, same bowling, same bowling. Because it, it's all well and good seeing the results, isn't it? And seeing it was a fantastic season in Red Bull cricket. And things did work out well in the end. But cricket isn't always plain sailing, is it? And so I imagine over the course of this season, there were definitely some some bumps in the road, some more difficult moments. So in terms of your first year, Ryan, what do you think has been the most difficult aspects of your job as Durham head coach?
1: Um, No doubt the schedule. um, You know, it is so hectic. So you find yourself. Probably not preparing for games as well as you would like, and not preparing players as, as well as you'd like. You know that generally your your bowling stocks and staff are starting to lag a bit because of the the, the workloads, and you're trying to obviously maintain that. And, you know we're not we don't have a massive squad. We don't have the luxury of having just a red ball bowling attack and then a white ball bowling attack. So you know there's going to come times where there's, they're just going to be tired and you know you have to come up with ideas of you know going up to ben rain and say hey mate we may have to leave you out of this game because i think you're starting to tire we need to give you a rest he uh, he hates not playing he doesn't want to not play um so do you do it differently dears you know there was a couple of times this year ben and alex were told not to come to training not to come to the club for a few days just get away. Um, refresh yourselves. We did that with uh, Michael Jones who needed some time. You know, we got kids here, obviously a delayed, to try and send him back to the Netherlands when we can. You know, George Drizzle is from Bristol, never gets home, so we send him home for a couple of days. They're just little things that we're trying to do to keep everyone up, but it is a long season and, you know, the 100 is actually a good thing in, in the fact that some of our players obviously got selected but didn't play a lot. So, they almost had a month of uh, sitting on the sidelines and, and rest and recuperating, which, and, you know, doing a lot of training, which, again, it's probably not the perfect thing. But for us at the time, it was probably a nice thing for, for Potts and Rain to have a bit of a rest and Ollie Robson to have a bit of a rest. So, yeah, that, that, that's the toughest thing. And, you know, the other thing that I'll throw in is that um, I love white ball cricket. You know, I, I'm here, you know, Durham traditionally is a Red ball club. You know, Red ball is everything to us and we wanted to be in first division and, you know, we're really happy that we're there and, you know, we're going to come out swinging and we're going to try and win the first division next year. But I really love white ball as well and I was disappointed with how we went about. And, again, this first year was a, a big learning curve for, our, for what we had as a player group and what we can get to. But... I think that's going to be a massive challenge next year as well because I want to win T Twenty games. I want to win the T Twenty competition. I I think we've got the squad, the makeup of the squad, the two recruits that we have signed are very much all format players, and they're going to improve us as well. So um, I think we're going to have lots of challenges next year. I think it's going to be super fun, but. Keep an eye out, I think, for both, not just red Bull, but for what we do in white ball as well.
0: Absolutely. And Ryan will touch upon that as we get to the, the closing stages of today's podcast. But just touching on that point about this season, because it was a spectacular first season. Let's face it, you did achieve a couple of your goals. So, for example, promotion back to the first division. It's something which Durham fans have been waiting nearly seven years for. It was the monkey that was constantly on the back. And finally, it's been rid. The club are back where they belong in the first division. And in addition to that, I'll mention the the batting bonus points, but the scoring rate as well, 4.3 runs and over. It was the highest in the entire country. So in terms of that expansive, free-flowing, dynamic, fast-paced cricket, there was definitely a massive tick next to that as well. But then when you mention the, the white ball performances, fifth in Group B of the Metro Bank One Day Cup, and seventh in the North group. In hindsight, which is a very powerful thing, how would you reflect on your team's performances in the summer of 2023?
1: Well, to be honest, and I hate to just sort of put it to the side, but I think the Metro Cup is, unfortunately, its all depend, comes down to what the 100 take, basically. If you take, I think we had seven players go to the 100, Now, that doesn't sound a lot. A lot of people say, oh, yeah, but, you know, sorry, you might have 10 or 11 or whatever. But to a a smaller county like us, seven players out of your team is a lot. So to make up, you know, those sort of positions, and, you know, I'm all about giving young kids an opportunity and, and making sure they get a chance to develop. But they need to develop whilst having some senior players around them. So, so the 50-over stuff, I sort of go, okay, you know what, we were a bit disappointing. We had some good points in it. We had some great moments, but we did, weren't consistent enough. But when we look at the T20, we really look at it closely. And probably a, a, a similar um, underlining tone for, for the 50-over cricket was we just didn't have a bowling staff. We literally, uh, Bryden cast Matthew Potts, didn't bowl a ball. Um, Paul Coghlan, uh, I think, played two games, one and a half games before getting injured again. Who was, you know, probably one. It was going to be one of our white ball bowlers. Uh, Buster later, obviously, went to the World Cup qualifiers. Um, it wasn't great, to be honest. In, in fact, you know, I think we won three of the first five games or four games. And I think if you have a close look. Pretty sure we made more runs and scored at a rate that we haven't done before for a long time. So, the actual, there was such a lot of batting going on, which was really, really, really good. But yes, were we disappointing with the ball? 100%. And to win T20 tournaments, bowlers have to stand up. And I just think that, you know, and then if you go another layer deeper, our power play, we just couldn't stop the hemorrhaging. Basically, it was you know Ben Rain had to bowl in the power play, which we don't want him to bowl in the power play. He probably got overs at times where he didn't really need to be there. That you know Glover wasn't didn't quite get it right, and uh, you know again I don't mean to name players, but there was there was a lot of things going on that didn't quite get our bowling right. I think Wayne Parnell was okay without being you know. What Again, he was coming off the, an IPL and probably was a little bit uh, down on form and stuff, but, um, yeah, there was a number of elements. So you just, look, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm sounding like I'm trying to make excuses, but if you don't have the bowlers and the depth of bowlers ready to go in T20, especially in this country when there's so many dynamic up-front players, mate, you get hurt in a million different ways in that power play against all teams. Um, Yeah, we just couldn't stem the the flow once that got going. So, look, we had some good stories. Nathan Souter, I thought, was an unbelievable story. We're going to add to that with, you know, with Parkinson, who who we know can bowl up front and in the power play. We've announced that Scotty Boland's coming for the T20 as well as, um, you know, Red Bull cricket, and I think he'll be very exciting to watch in that. So we are trying to get things in place. I say all that. But then there's a World Cup next year as well, which uh, we're going to sit here, you know, Buster later won't be here, you would think. Um, Bryden cast just got picked for the 50-over team today, so he might be a chance in t So, yeah, we just don't know that. But if we get everyone together, we should be fun.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And, again, the T20 Blaster is a funny tournament, isn't it? Because things can change like that in an instant. And, honestly, the North group and that this has been the case for so many years, is just ridiculously competitive. I don't know how on earth it does it, but it's always the North group seems to be the more competitive, but then the South group teams always seem to win the competition. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. yeah
1: it is. There's definitely no game. You don't look at the start of the season and go, oh, yeah, well, we should win there. We should win. You know, no disrespect to Leicestershire, but at the time and how they are playing, you'd probably go, oh, yeah, well, we should beat Leicester. Mate, they whacked us twice. <laughs> they made us look second-rate both times. Um, so, yeah, there are no easy games. So you've got to get your formula right. You've got to get the, the players playing well. you got to have a couple of guys play outstanding, have outstanding seasons in it. But then also you got you need everyone else to step up. So we, we know we've got a lot of work to do there, and that's the exciting part. We're not just going to sit on our hands and think, oh, we're great. We won the uh, Division Two Red Ball competition, um, and that's all it is. But... Yeah, we we got lots of work to do and I'm sure we will we'll get
0: it right. Well, Ryan, I'm incredibly glad that you've just mentioned that because my next question is about ambitions. And I go back to a quote from an article, an interview that you did with Crick Info back in April. And to be honest, it's one of my favourite quotes from the entire season. I've said it throughout the podcast. And it's very short. It's very simple. I'll be honest. I want us to be the best team in England. Do you fully believe that? Do you think that Durham can be the premier team in county cricket?
1: I have no doubt. I I, I think that what we showed just in Division Two, and everyone could say, oh, it's just Division Two, but what we showed was a style of play that works and we will stick to. The bowling stocks in Red Bull, when we had it, even when we were down, you know, we were down on players, we still found ways to win. I I think that will keep going. And what I'll say about that is once there's a belief in that sort of group, the other thing is that more people will want to come and play for us. Like, let's be honest here, down south, you know, you see players moving. And, again, we're going to be incredibly loyal to our youngsters from the north. You know, we'll always try and sign our our kids from up here. But, yes, you lose a couple along the way. We've lost a couple this year that haven't got contracts. But we're trying to continue to make this squad better and better and better. And that means the standards. We're not going to accept mediocrity. So if you have a really bad year or a couple of bad seasons, you might not be here. And that's not because you're from the north. It's just the fact you haven't performed well enough. And if that means a youngster from down south comes here, and well, that could happen. But the thing is, you've got to have, you've got to set your goals high. The other thing that, you know, when I say we want to be the best team in England, I say that because what happens then is that your team gets looked at closer from the selectors and then all of a sudden some of your players are playing for England, which is how it should be. You know, we're incredibly pl- proud of, for such a small county, we have Ben Stokes, the captain, we have Mark Wood, Bryden Cast you got Matthew Potts who's played. Now people are talking about the five under-19s kids we've had for the Australian for the England under-19s group, and we have a lot of hopes for them. That's a sign that, you know, you, you're flourishing. You know, John Windows in the academy, man, they, they should build a bloody statue for him because he does just churn out players from his academy into into our first-team system, and, you know, this year, Daniel Hogg and, and Luke Robinson are two more that have been added to that young group of fast bowlers. And, mate, they're exciting. One's six foot eight, and he's still growing. I think he grows every time he gets into his car to come down to the ground. But, you know, he's exciting. Luke Robinson runs in and wants to bowl fast. He bowls up. Again, sorry, I, I don't do the miles per hour thing yet. That's one thing you'll never get at me. But that and, the, and reading the score right. But, um, you know, he bowls mid 130s. And he's only 18 years of age. And he's, got, and he's never been in a gym. So, you know, there, there's some exciting talent coming. Can we be the best team in England? I don't know. But, geez, it's, it's, it's going to be good fun trying to find out if we can be.
0: It certainly will be. And in terms of why I loved that quote, it just shows ambition. And that is something which I do think in recent times Durham have actually lacked. So to see that, to see that belief, that confidence in the group, the assurance almost, that success will come if the process is followed. I I really do think it's fantastic, Ryan. And in terms of this upcoming season, the summer of 2024, just before I get on to the final question of the podcast, which will, of course, revolve around the future, I suppose we do have to talk about the, the elephant in the room. Scott Bolland, what a signing that is for Durham County Cricket Club. So In terms of your aspirations with him, in terms of just his his presence, his aura, the signing of the Australian test scene bowler, why Scott Bolland? What was it about him which stood out to you?
1: Well, I'm going to say in all this, I'd love to be sitting here taking all the credit in the world, but I'm going to say wasn't me. Because it Marcus North? <laughs> this is where someone like Marcus North, who knows the game so well in this country, and he has, and I guess it's why we get on so well and we're so like-minded. We, we want to not just to go to first division and compete. We, like I say, we're going to go to win. And then for, for Northy, he was straight away and said, okay, well, we're going to get on the front foot and we're going to make a statement early. And what is that statement? We need a fast bowler. Righto, let's get the best one we can. And, you know, when you, you talk about Scott Boland, um, probably had a disappointing ashes. That look, We can say that. So I reckon he's got a bit to prove and he wants to come back to England and he thinks that the time is right for him to come to England. He wants to play more T20. He's never really played a lot of T20 um, but thinks he could be very good at it, which, again, this is a great opportunity for him with us as well. So I think he is going to be an absolute gun in county cricket i think you know what he adds so if you look at it if the first game rolls around and you're playing these pots boland that's a lot to choose from without saying Delator or Coghlan. Um, you know you got to slide parkinson in there at some point maybe haven't even mentioned that we've got to try and slide colin ackerman in the team yet which I, god knows where he's going but Um, That could have to be a paper-scissors-rock one that uh, someone's got to miss out. But, again, the the competition for places is what fires a team and makes them better, and that's what we're going to create and that's what we're going to have. So I think Scotty's going to be fantastic for our group, and I think he'll enjoy it more than what what he can realise because, you know, what I will say is the Durham dressing room is a great place to be. If you're a player, if you you know, coming guys like Ashton Turner talk about it so fondly. You know, our walls are adorned with lots of Aussies and stuff who have been there and they still talk about the place. You know, when I thought of coming here, David Boone was one of those guys. Michael DeVenito was another who sent texts, go to Durham, mate, go to Durham. So, yeah, there's a lot of fondness up here for the Aussies and I'm sure Scotty will do fantastically well for us.
0: Yeah, to be honest, Ryan, I, I don't really have any <laughs> anything more to say, to be honest, about Scott Boland. What a signing. It was an unbelievable signing. And yeah, I would say I'm looking forward to watching him in county cricket. As long as he doesn't play against Warwickshire, then I'll be just fine. But goodness me, it's an unbelievable signing. And it does just, again, show the ambition, the aspirations of this group and this club at the moment. And that brings me beautifully onto my final question for the podcast, Ryan. And that is your future aspirations with Durham County Cricket Club, because I think it's apparent, to be honest, that from our conversation, the goals aren't just being promoted. The goals aren't just to compete in Division One. It's to win the entire thing. It's to be competitive across formats and also win trophies. But I suppose in the wider picture as well, in terms of the community surrounding Durham, in terms of promoting young talent, what impact, what legacy does Ryan Campbell want to leave? on Durham County Cricket Club?
1: Well, the very easy answer to that is when I when I go and down the track when players are looking back and having a beer with each other, they are sitting there and they talk very openly and very fondly and say, you know what, my time at Durham was the time of my life. and And that's really important to me because, you know, we're lucky enough to be Paid to play or coach or be involved in a game that we truly love. Ever since you know that our conversation started with the the games down at Point Perrin and relaxing, I've loved this game. My near death experience has taught me that you know what, do things you love. So for me, if players walk away and say say, well, what do you think about Cambo down the track? Geez, we had a good time. We loved the being in that dressing room, the environment that we created, because we could be me. We could be who they wanted to be. And, you know, if we get them to their limits of their talent, hopefully we're going to produce more English cricketers. Hopefully we're going to get more and more silverware up here um, and more and more enjoyment and entertainment for the, the people of Durham who come and watch week after week and, you know, that, that's what you love to see and big smiles on their faces and, you know, high fives as you walk into the ground. They're all having a good time. So that, that'll be my hope. I, you know, like I say, I, I hope to be here for quite some time. Um, but, again, when my time comes to an end, like it does for most coaches at some point, I'll always look back with a big smile on my face and the joy that my kids have playing, um, you know, football and cricket here at Durham and walking onto the ground and, and seeing – the stadium as they drive past it. So, yeah, I, I think there's lots of good things still to come.
0: Well, Ryan, it goes without saying, but obviously myself and everybody associated with the County Cricket Podcast are wishing yourself and Durham all the very best of luck heading into the future. Personally speaking, I think it's quite obvious to tell, but I love the projects. I really do. I love the methodologies. I love the style of play. It's just been a breath of fresh air. And yes, if we do get to see that again in the summer of 2024, I do imagine it'll be a matter of of when, not if, trophies return to the Riverside ground. But that does essentially bring us to an end to what has been an absolutely fascinating episode of the Counter Cricket Podcast. And Ryan, you're always welcome back on this platform in the future. But before we say our final goodbyes for the recording, do you have anything to plug or promote? Any social media channels, websites, businesses? anything like that
1: no no not not for me i i love all the social media stuff and the the nips and what i will say is like we, we all listen to it but if you're on social media and i know we should say this more often it doesn't give you a right just to say whatever you want because you know the people that read it it's not good some of the stuff that you know we have our good days we have our bad days and the passion for sport is unbelievable just remember, we're all human too. The, the, all the players, all the coaching staff—we're not, we're not robots. We do read it all, and some of it cuts pretty fine. So, yeah, like I say, all I'd promote is make sure that you uh, think before you type.
0: Well, again, that is very, very sound advice <laughs> to wrap up what has been an excellent episode of the podcast. And yes, that does pretty much bring us to an end to today's episode of the Counter Cricket Podcast. To each and every single one of you, wonderful listeners out there. Thank you ever so much for tuning in. And as always, guys, we'll see you on the next one.